You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello, everyone. I wanted to extend a very warm welcome to today's webinar on Lessons Learned, Responding to Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. My name is Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network at ODI, and I'll be moderating today's session. We're delighted that more than 160 people have chosen to join us online today. And we want to get as many of you involved in the conversation as possible. So please do send through your queries and comments to the chat room, and we'll try to address as many of these as possible throughout the event. Uh, today's webinar is particularly timely as the world grapples with the coronavirus pandemic. So before we start, let me give you a brief introduction to ODI and HPN, the Humanitarian Practice Network. ODI is an independent global think tank which harnesses the power of evidence and ideas through research, convening, power, and policy advice to promote a sustainable and peaceful world where everyone thrives. Uh, the Humanitarian Practice Network, which is hosted by ODI, is a forum for humanitarian practitioners, researchers, and policymakers to critically reflect on and to share their knowledge and experience. I, I also wanted to highlight that this edition of the Humanitarian Exchange magazine on the response to Ebola in the DRC, which we're launching and discussing today was co-edited with Anne Harmer, who manages ELRA's Research for Health and Humanitarian Crises program. And I know Anne uh, has joined us online. Welcome, Anne. So we'll be live tweeting using the hashtag DRC Ebola. Please follow us also on at HPN underscore HPG and at ODI Dev and retweet to spread the word. So in today's session, we want to reflect on the world's second largest outbreak of Ebola, declared on the 1st of August, 2018, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. More than 2,200 people have died and over 3,300 have been infected. The response to Ebola has been complicated by violent conflict between central government, local political actors, and armed groups in the affected areas in which rumors about the virus and the response have been spread and shaped by that conflict as well. So attempts have been made to apply lessons learned from the 2014-15 Ebola outbreak in West Africa, such as the need for strong surveillance and outbreak control strategies, and the importance of understanding the behaviors, practices, and perceptions of communities and of engaging them actively in the response. Um, the ident identification and trial uh, use of effective vaccines during the outbreak has been an important and promising development too. Yet despite all of these efforts, it's taken almost 20 months to contain the outbreak. Why has containing the Ebola epidemic proven so difficult is one of the key questions. So drawing on articles in the latest issue of the Humanitarian Exchange and, and their own research and experience, our panelists are going to discuss to what degree the lessons learned from the West Africa Ebola outbreak have been taken into account in the DRC response. 
and how barriers to containment of the disease could have been better addressed. So let me now introduce our four distinguished panelists. Joining us from GOMA in the DRC is, first of all, Dr. Linda Mabula. Linda is a Public Health and Infectious Disease Advisor with the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance at USAID. She also works as a physician with John Hopkins um, Community Physicians and is an assistant professor at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. During the West Africa Ebola outbreak, Linda supported the response in Liberia and Guinea on behalf of the OFDA Ebola Disaster Assistance Response Team or the DART team, and she's recently been serving as a health advisor for the current Ebola outbreak in the DRC with the World Bank. Welcome, Linda. Um, also joining us from DRC is Bernard Cateta Balabuno, who is the country director for CAFOD in DRC, responsible for the design, implementation, and overall strategic direction of the country program. Bernard has over 15 years of experience managing humanitarian and development programs in Haiti, Mali, Benin, Niger, Côte d'Ivoire, and DRC for international agencies. Bernard co-authored an article in this edition of the exchange on the role of faith leaders in the Ebola response in DRC. So welcome, Bernard. And then also um, we have with us Natalie Roberts, a medical doctor and humanitarian responder with Médecins Sans Frontières with experience from multiple humanitarian settings. Uh, Natalie is also the Director of Studies at the Center for Reflection on Humanitarian Action and Knowledge, the French acronym for which is CRASH, um, based in Paris. Um, CRASH is an initiative created by MSF to stimulate debate and critical reflection on humanitarian action. Previ previously, Natalie was Emergency Operations Manager for MSF in Paris, and she's been involved in MSF's response to the 2018 Ebola outbreak in DRC also authored an article in this edition that's the lead article, in fact, in the exchange, which reflects on different approaches adopted by responders in the DRC outbreak with the aim of capturing lessons learned to address future epidemic outbreaks. So we'll be interested to, to hear from Natalie today. And then finally, and last but not least, is Teresa Jones, who is joining us from, she's in the UK, but she is normally in Nairobi. Uh, Teresa is a clinical psychologist worked as sorry, psychosocial, that's a difficult one to say, psychosocial lead for the mental health and psychosocial support programs of the International Rescue Committee and uh, MSF across Africa and the Middle East. Teresa represents Anthrologica on the Social Science and Humanitarian Action platform, providing social science expertise to ensure integration of social science research and evidence into humanitarian emergencies. Um, so Teresa has also co-authored an article in this edition addressing grief and memorialization in the context of the DRC Ebola outbreak. So to start the discussion today, I'd like to pose a few questions first to our panelists, but please send your own questions for the panelists and, co and your comments to the chat room and we will try to address those as we go through the event rather than saving them all until the end as we normally do in a public event. So, let, Linda, let me start with you. Um, Linda, since the late 1970s, the DRC successfully managed to contain nine Ebola outbreaks. This tenth one has proved more challenging. 
There was an expectation that DRC's previous experience, along with lessons learned, West Africa would have resulted in bringing this latest outbreak to an end sooner. And as a medical doctor and public health professional involved in both the West Africa response and then more recently in the DRC response, can you give us your insights into why you think this outbreak has been so difficult to address? First of all, Wendy, thank you for having me. And I think um, context is really important. The 10th outbreak occurred in an area um, where there has been ongoing conflict for many years. And if you look at the previous DRC outbreaks, um, they've occurred in um, various provinces, um, both rural urban areas, um, where there hasn't been conflict. And um, this, I think, has played a very big role in um, being able to control or not control the outbreak. I think um, this is also an area where there is a lot of trade, um, there is a lot of population displacement, there's a lot of distress towards the government and towards um, both towards international organizations. And um, this is why I think um, these are some of the reasons why this outbreak has been, has been difficult to control. So when you look at the previous outbreaks, um, they've occurred primarily in Equateur. Um, there have been four outbreaks that have occurred in Equateur. Um, one outbreak in Isiro, which is in the Chui province um, in 2012. Um, out, there, there have been outbreaks in Kikwit, et cetera. And um, the Kikwit outbreak was also difficult to control because it was the first time there was a large outbreak in an urban setting. Um, here we've had an outbreak that has um, really covered 29 health zones. So you have this wide geographic spread um, that basically required a lot, large operational presence. And if you look at the various incidents that occurred throughout the outbreak, um, first of all, um, let's talk about the elections that occurred in December. I think that uh -huh. led to lots of speculations and rumors. Um, you had uh, multiple attacks by armed groups, um, the ADF, the Mai Mai, that led to decreased operational presence of teams, that led to really a loss of gains that had been obtained. Um, every time there was a decline in incidents, it, um, an attack occurred, um, often occurred, and um, gains were lost. And you saw this surge in the number of cases. There were attacks on Ebola treatment centers, attacks on healthcare workers. Um, several of our colleagues, unfortunately, passed away. Um, they were killed, unfortunately, um, by, by armed groups. Um, so all of this um, has really led to a very difficult um, context. And this is um, in contrast to West Africa, which was also a challenging outbreak and had some similarities with, um, with the DRC outbreak in that there, there was population displacement. Um, you know, there was a wide geographic spread, urban centers were also affected. But I, I do think that um, the DRC context, um, North Kivu, where there's been um, for, for years, and the population really felt like they were abandoned. Um, you know, their priority obviously was the fact that they wanted to keep their family safe. And um, the response priority was to contain Ebola. So this, this also um, led to a lot of distrust occurring um, in, within the context of this outbreak. Thank and you, in Linda. Terms of, um, Go ahead. In terms of lessons learned, um, I do think that one of the things we did not learn was the fact that we needed to have a more localized response. I think it was very important to use um, and engage with local leaders. I um, once had a meeting um, in Mombasa with several traditional chiefs and they told me 
we were not involved from the start. Um, we could have helped with contact tracing. We could have helped with community-based surveillance. Um, community health workers were chosen from various parts of the country as opposed to coming from um, community structures called CACs, for example, Cellules d'Animation Communautaire, um, that were actually trusted by, by the community. Um, there are lots of things that were actually positive um, in that um, we had, you know, a randomized controlled trial that was implemented quite rapidly with more than 600 patients that led to um, data on the effectiveness of therapeutics. We did not have, we, there was a randomized controlled trial in, in West Africa that was started somewhat late that had a very small sample size um, that, and therefore we weren't able to really um, arrive at, at a conclusion because of the statistical significance to the, the small sample size. Um, optimized care, um, this was a big, big gain in that um, improvements in the quality of care, um, you know, hydration, electrolyte repletion, um, the ratio between providers and, and patients, um, decentralized care. So there were lots of things that um, we did learn from West Africa, and I wanted to emphasize on that. Um, the good news is that the last case was actually reported on um, February 27th, sorry, February 17th, um, and the last patient was discharged on March 3rd, and therefore we're, we are hoping to celebrate the end of the outbreak on April 12th, so that's the good news. I do think that um, there is still a lot to learn. Um, there were community feedback mechanisms that were put into place, and I know that the other panelists will probably speak about this some more. Even though there was um, there were feedback mechanisms mechanisms put into place, it wasn't often that those um, recommendations were actually followed by various parts of the response. Um, I think many of the pillars of the response were siloed. So you had surveillance operating in silo, you had communication, whereas risk communication, community engagement really should have been a cross-cutting theme. Um, and should have fed into um, safe and dignified burials, should have fed into surveillance, should have fed into um, vaccination. I think we did make a lot of improvements towards the end where we, um, where response teams weren't as visible. You know, they would go into communities in the beginning with these large jeeps and large, and you invest. And um, I think it really scared the community. And I think towards the end, one of the lessons learned was, hey, let's not go in as if this were a war. <laughs> let's go in quietly. Let's um, really engage more with, with local communities and community health workers. And I think those things were actually um, taken into consideration towards the end. Um, genetic sequencing is another example. Um, the use of genetic sequencing to look at chains of transmission really helped um, determine whether or not there were, there were unknown chains. When there was a survivor in Aloya recently that um, started this new cluster, I think genetic sequencing helped um, Determine whether or not it was whether or not it was a relapse versus reinfection, and so um, you know the use of science, um, the use of social sciences, the anthropology um, combined, I think, was a big lesson from West Africa. And even though not all of those principles and lessons were actually adhered to in the beginning of the outbreak, I think as we continue to move forward, these things were were incorporated um, into the response. Uh -huh. Thank you very much, Linda. Um, I wondered if any of the other panelists wanted to respond also to that question or had any additional comments to make. No? Okay. Um, I, yeah, Teresa, please. 
yeah, I, I just wanted to explain. So when I come to answering my question, I'll be able to build a bit more on um, how social science has been integrated across this response and some really important lessons learned from the CAS team, which is the social science data selling country. So hopefully I'll be able to pick up on that a bit, Linda. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Linda, I just wondered, I mean, which of the, the lessons learned from the West Africa crisis do you think have been particularly useful in helping the Ministry of Health and humanitarian responders address the DRC outbreak? I mean, you've mentioned um, several, but what do you think have been the most um, useful? I think um, what Teresa just mentioned, the, the creation of the um, social science cell, guys, um, that has been extremely helpful. I think the Ministry of Health started having weekly meetings um, where community feedback was actually shared with various pillars of the response. So all the presidents of the commission, surveillance, infection prevention control, um, safe and dignified burial, um, they were all required, and I'm saying required, to attend these uh -huh. meetings. So they could actually incorporate um, community feedback in some of the interventions. I also think um, that so once a week there, there was a joint presentation, um, so GAS or social, the social sciences group, but also there's an epidemiology group that looked at, um, they did a lot of research on, um, you know, day-to-day, -day, um, you know, in-time research on the epi of the outbreak, and they would also give feedback. You know, why is it that the number of alerts remains low? Why is it that we're not getting enough alerts in the community? And that was actually combined with social sciences. So it was almost like as if it was a mixed method study. Um, I think that's really important because we can't just have a medicalized response or, or a public health response. It has to be integrated with these other aspects. I know Teresa's gonna talk a little bit more about that, but I think that was probably one of the biggest gains in addition to you know, some of these great innovations. But at the end of the day, you can't improve mortality if you have therapeutics that people are not seeking care on time and they're they're scared and they're there's still a lot of fear towards mm -hmm. um, treatment I think we have to improve health seeking behavior and I think you know we, we talk a lot about West Africa but there are also lessons learned from the HIV crisis from you know from TB from polio on public health because public health should not just be focused on a medical response but should include the social sciences should include include anthropology and I think um, being able to integrate all that was probably one of the biggest gains, in my opinion. Thank you very much, Linda. Um, I'm going to move on to Bernard now. I don't see any questions at the moment coming through from our online audience. I'm sure they will. But Bernard, um, I wondered, after the West Africa Ebola outbreak, it was suggested that more could have been done to involve traditional and community leaders and supporting the public health response because people often turn to them first for guidance and support. And in fact, um, Linda also mentioned this. Churches and, and religious institutions in the DRC have a long history of delivering health services, particularly in remote areas where public services aren't available and, and the potential for their involvement in the response um, was considerable. So what are some of the ways that religious leaders have been engaged in the DRC response? And how successful have some of these approaches been? And do you think more could have been done to engage faith leaders from the outset? Go ahead. Thank you so much, uh, Wendy. This is a 
a good uh, uh, discussion and good opportunity. Uh, in terms of engaging religious leaders, I think uh, there was a missed opportunity uh, at the beginning, but later on, religious leaders were fully involved in this. But earlier on, they started working in, uh, with uh, the mean they had, and the mean they had was their churches and their congregation. And within their congregation, they started, first of all, changing their uh, way of worshipping, basically their practices and their rituals. In terms of hand washing, in terms of touching, in terms of prayer, and many of them, all congregation, all, all uh, faith groups uh, uh, mixed uh, this message. They took it not only to their congregation, but, but also to the communities as well. They were very involved in the tracing of people who have been in contact with uh, uh, um, uh, people who have been contact, who, who contacted Ebola, and that was helpful for health workers as well. They were also helpful in terms of uh, asking people to accept the vaccine. Many of these faith leaders were, took the vaccine in public so that people will see that they've, been, uh, uh, they've taken this and uh, people will come and be vaccinated the next day. Uh, the Bishop of Beni Butembo is a big example. Uh, he did this and this was on the media and this was, uh, was uh, public. In terms of psychosocial uh, support, People who've been affected, communities that have been affected, I think church leaders and church groups did a very good job in terms of uh, encouraging people uh, and uh, in terms of telling people to really seek uh, help to the treatment center as opposed to going to uh, uh, traditional uh, medicine. There were a lot of uh, community dialogue as well that were organized by uh, uh, faith groups. And uh, this was very helpful because it was kind of a one-to-one, -one, I would say, uh, community and their faith leader in terms of encouraging them to seek, uh, uh, to seek help. There was also a lot of rumor, as Linda have said, and religious leader took those rumors and turned them positively into scriptures uh, to convince people to, uh, to change. And this was uh, uh, a good news as well. The success was because there was distrust from the community. Many community believe that their faith, their faith leaders are with them, supporting them, and are going with them in this difficult period. We need to put this into context. DRC has more than 80% of Christian uh, and people who call themselves or those who belong to any religion, maybe even more, more than that. Health centers uh, here that those that are run by the Catholic Church alone is more than 50%. In fact, the Mabalako Health Center that was affected the first belongs to the Catholic uh, uh, Church as well. They run a lot of social services, I think more than 70, including schools and so on. So these are people who reach this area that no one else can reach. These are people, people come to first for advice, especially in the context of DRC where uh, the government is have felt in many in many many ways. More could have been done. Yes, I think as I said earlier, we missed the opportunity earlier on. Um, when this outbreak, I think most of the workers on this outbreak came from the capital in Kinshasa. Many from West Africa. A lot of expatriates who don't understand. Uh, very well how the Nande community, we need to understand that this was more in the Nande community, uh, operate, they are very excluded people, they are capable people, business people, 
They are people who have shown a lot of example in this country. In terms of many things, they excel. They excel in many in many things they do. And when all these people came in, they were observing basically. And people came with gears, as you you see on the picture, uh, wearing like astronauts uh, from the uh, people from the village. That's how they will definitely interpret it, and that's how they've been telling us. Brand new vehicles in this community that have gone through war for over 20 years. People did not really learn, came with Monisco accompaniment. Monisco here, the reputation has been extremely low, to zero almost. So what people were asking, why now, why today? Why Ebola? Why they didn't help us all these days? We've been dying all along. We didn't see all this support coming in. What's going on here? So basically people were looking back and saying, see what's going on here. A lot of practices were not respected. People in the Benibu temple, they eat in the morning before they go to the farm. Now they're bringing people to cook for them, those who are ill, Kinshasa to cook for them. Which kind of food? I don't know where the food is coming from. Maybe important from Kinshasa, not their local food they are, they are used to. When I spoke to the Bishop of Butembo last time, he said one of the, the key practice that kind of pushed people off, in Beni, in Butembo, you don't bury a woman who's pregnant. You have to remove the baby, for example, earlier before you do that. And there have to be some traditional practice that will be done. They were doing all this. You can't see your, your sick people. So all this became, the, the treatment center became like a deaf, a deaf place where people will go and die. The community really were reluctant on this. They should have used deaf leader early. They should have supported deaf leaders early to be involved in this. Another issue was the funding issue. We were all the, the, the humanitarian organization were looking, but there was no difference between business people and we humanitarian people. When we were discussing money, no organ, no faith organization is there. When you need to sensitize people, please come and work with us. What what they mean? What will they use? No funding, no information, and nothing. So can you repeat the last part of the question so I can comment on that? Otherwise, uh, yes. I can uh, stop by that. No, of course, uh, Bernard. I, I just wondered, uh, I mean, you've said that faith leaders weren't engaged, and it sounds, what it sounds like is as if the lessons, they're lessons that were also learned, I think, in the West Africa response, too. Why do you think um, it happened like that? I mean, we know that trust or the absence of it plays a key part in determining whether people affected by or at risk of Ebola seek treatment. And, you know, reports suggest that in the DRC, trust remains one of the biggest obstacles to, or did remain one of the biggest obstacles to combating the, the outbreak. So why, why do you think that is? So that's the question we get all the time. The question we get all the time is why we didn't learn from the, uh, the West Africa uh, Ebola. And really, we don't have the answer ourselves. Because we've been asking the involvement of faith organization for a long time, and this did not come. So what we did, we as faith organizations, we started bringing uh, other faith together. For example, we as Cafford, we organized a round table here in Goma. I know Tia Found did the same in, uh, in Beni, to bring people together saying, how can we work with the minimal means we have? We know we are the trusted people in the community. We know we can reach areas that uh, uh, many people can't reach. What, what should we do? We came up with our roadmap. 
we came up with what we can do after talking to people in the community and we started supporting the and the, 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 the repost team. We need to give credit here actually to uh, the team uh, that worked. This came after Dr. Muyembe was appointed as the coordinator of, uh, of the repost. Basically, he changed his focus was more on community engagement. And I think uh, we need to give credit to all who have been working with him and advising him uh, uh, on that. And since Dr. Muyembe came in, we saw the curve changing. We saw really people turning towards uh, uh, faith leaders, towards community leaders, and start working with people. And I think this, the trust starts coming back. Earlier on, people will turn to uh, traditional uh, uh, healers as opposed to, to, to going to the treatment centers. It took a lot of effort from the church uh, uh, groups to explain to people that, you know, people, you're going there, you can be cured. They were using even the people who've been cured from Ebola to help them sanitize other people uh, in the community. So it took some time and this trust starts coming slowly. But again, many people who contracted Ebola uh, or many people at least who were reported, you will realize if you look at the, at, at the data, they were outside of the health center. So those are the questions we were asking ourselves. Why are they outside of the health center? Why are, not, are they not coming to the health center? It's because of that lack of trust. But think has improved a lot, as Linda says, and I think we, we were at the end of this crisis, we were at the area where we were working hand in hand and things were improving. But we should not have spent one year, almost two years in this crisis, if we're working together earlier on. Mm. No, thank you, Bernard. So, it, it, I mean, in terms of um, engagement at the beginning, uh, you're, I think what you're saying is that there, there was no reason why international actors couldn't have connected with faith leaders from the very beginning and made much better use of their uh, proximity and the length of time that they'd been there, their knowledge of the communities. There were no particular exactly. reasons why they, there wasn't this engagement. That engagement reason, that's a question we get all the time and we don't know why. We don't know why you will come accompanied by military, by UN uh, uh, personnel to go and sensitize the community while you know that there is a church that is there, was there before the crisis, will be there during the crisis, will be there after the crisis. Right now we have a lot of NGO in Grand Nord. All of them will be going very soon. There is no funding. Now, who will stay there? These community leaders, these faith groups. Uh, and mm. we, we really don't understand that we, we're still trying to dig from the community people. If you ask all the community people, they'll tell you it's because of money. Because all this big, all of us coming from outside, we want to get the money. And that, there were many songs from people, community people saying, this is a business. This is not, you know, you guys are not here to help us. You guys are here to help yourself. Mm. So I think my colleague can allude to that as well. Yes, did anybody else want to comment on uh, this issue of uh, the failure, seems to be the failure to engage um, faith leaders effectively from the beginning, this issue of building trust? Natalie. It was something we discussed here, just in comparison to some other contexts we work. We, we found it quite interesting that our teams instinctively, when we work in, in Islamic contexts like Yemen or Syria, we engage the local imam but we didn't really see our teams having the reflection to go to the local church in a Christian context. And, and that was just something we, we've been reflecting on is why, why is that? Why, why are we automatically going to the imam when we wouldn't go to the pastor or the 
you know the priest in a in a in a Christian context, and we can't really explain that. Mm. Is it something that you would um, you would look to do differently uh, in future? I mean, is this a lesson that uh, you think people have actually learned and can apply? I, I think, uh, yeah, I think yeah, absolutely. Because we we often in places like DRC and in Central African Republic we sometimes seem to use the catholic church particularly as a place to a place that gives a uh, lodging basically you know they have usually have houses that we can rent for a period of time until we find something more permanent um but then that kind of gives this false sense of of um this false impression that somehow we're engaging with the church where often we're just using them for their resources um in a way that we haven't done in, in other countries and i think you know in the future contexts, it really is important to engage. When when religion is such a huge part of people's lives, then you do need to engage with the with with the religion of the of the area. And I I don't see why we didn't do that in this in this situation. Hey, thank you. Linda, Anybody, think, any, yeah, go ahead, Bernard. Uh, Linda, I think we are we are we are talking localization. We are talking. We need to be involved with local people. When we are in big meetings, I think this has become a sexy word when we are all together. But when we are in the field, we are not seeing people walking the talk. We are not seeing that at all. At least I've been here in Kivu now for 10 years. I'm not seeing that people walking the talk. Talking to somebody from UNICEF, he said, what are you guys from the faith community need money for? You can work without money. What kind of thinking is this? Talking from somebody from the UN, uh, uh, he said uh, um, uh, uh, they, they are their protocol that does not allow them to go toward the faith. It will become like they are they, they, they are they are siding. I mean, in a country like DRC, you you're really missing the boat, in my opinion. Thanks, Bernard. Linda. So um, I, I agree with with what both Natalie and Bernard said. Um, I do think that, um, as they said, faith leaders were neglected, and we do realize that faith leaders play an important role in burials, for example. You know, when somebody dies, um, ceremonies are often led by faith leaders, um, regardless of the religion, whether it's Christianity, um, Islam, etc. And we could have utilized faith leaders better to communicate to the communities about transmission. Um, and I remember last summer there were a couple of pastors that were actually um, that actually became ill because they um, had prayed and laid hands on um, confirmed cases, therefore um, increasing transmission. And I think if we had um, thought critically about this um, and really targeted trusted members of the community, not just to be engagement, but also to teach them about about Ebola, do risk communication. Things could have been a little bit a little bit different. Um, you know, the pastor. There's a pastor that came from Butembo to go to Goma, therefore um, leading to infections in Goma. Um, I think it's I think it's our fault as responders. Um, we should have done better um, when we do public health responses. We think about all these groups, like Natalie said, that we target and other responses. But why didn't we do it here? It's it's also unclear. During meetings. During coordination meetings, we should be um, inviting more um, community leaders. They're, they are aware of what, what's happening with the response. Because we tend to just focus on, you know, UN and NGOs, but what about civil society? What about all these leaders? And we should include them in the coordination process as well. Thanks, Linda. Um, I've got an interesting question here uh, coming from Anne at Elra, Anne Harmer. Um, 
before I move on to Natalie and Teresa, I think this would be an interesting one for you to consider, uh, panelists. With the first coronavirus cases recently reported in Kinshasa, how much learning from managing the recent Ebola outbreak in Eastern DRC can we hope will be easily transferable to health services and care workers on the other side of the country? Do you have any reflections on, on that question? Anybody want to go first? I see lots of nodding. Natalie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question because we're all looking at um, coronavirus right now, particularly me. I think one one issue that came up a lot in, in the Ebola response was actually the idea of integration with an existing health system. Um, and I think, you know, with Ebola, it's, 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 we have to remember it's a different disease from coronavirus. Um, mm -hmm. It's actually relatively not contagious. You don't get so many cases, you know, people are far more likely to have another disease than to have Ebola. Um, but what we created with Ebola was almost like a parallel health system of, okay, if we think you've got Ebola, you go into this completely separate health system. Um, and, and it doesn't, it didn't really cater for, for either the people who didn't have Ebola or the people who ended up going into that system and had Ebola, because in the end it actually was, was, a, was a mistake to not integrate the response within the existing health system of that area. Um, and we have to remember in DRC that the health system is not just the state, the public health system. There's a huge health system that is private practitioners, traditional practitioners, uh, people that go from home to home um, looking after sick people. And so with any form of transmissible disease, we have to incorporate them into the response and think, well, how is this disease going to affect that system? And how can we use this system to better combat this disease? And I think it's very important now for the coronavirus response that we don't forget that because we learned that lesson towards the end of the Ebola response in DRC. And I think it's a risk that we could end up going back to the beginning with coronavirus and saying, well, this is a separate disease from the other diseases. And therefore, we need to create a separate system. So I think that's really some, a key point is to make sure we integrate at the beginning the coronavirus response and the fact that this disease will impact all our medical operations, you know, and in the entire health system in that country. Thanks, Natalie. Linda? So that's a very good question. And it's actually something that we've been discussing over the past couple of days, um, how to leverage the gains um, that have been made through the Ebola response and utilize them for coronavirus. I think there's been multiple healthcare workers that have been trained. There are a lot of epidemiologists that can do surveillance and contact tracing. There are points of entry um, you know, at airports that have been established, um, operational preparedness in multiple provinces. Um, we need to utilize those um, and not start all over again. I think um, infection prevention control is, is huge. I think um, there are a lot, many nosocomial infections. I think, um, as Natalie was saying, many individuals go seek care at traditional practices. And I think in the past couple of months, the majority of cases of Ebola came from um, traditional health centers. They weren't targeted again in the beginning in terms of training, in terms of strengthening um, you know, triage and IPC. So I think um, we need to look at all that, um, make sure that we capitalize on um, what has happened over the past 19, 20 months, um, uh -huh. but also make sure that um, we build upon, upon that. I think um, for over the past couple of months, there's been a, an effort to actually strengthen health systems. So transfer responsibility of the response um, back to the um, provincial health authorities, because they should be at the, at the center and they, um, 
the province of Ituri did a great job where the chef de division, um, the division chief of the provincial health authority, was involved in the response every single day. The médecin chef de zone were, was involved. The infirmier titulaire, the, the nurse nurse supervisor, um, was also involved. I think we, like like Natalie said, make sure that they're all involved um, from the start. Capitalize on what what's been gained so far, and 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 build on that. Um, there, there will be, there will likely be additional cases in other provinces. So whatever has been done for operational preparedness can be used as well. Thanks, Linda. No, that's really helpful. Anyone else from the panel want to comment uh, on that before we move on? Teresa. I'll just add very briefly around continuing this theme of localization. Um, which is certainly something that in West Africa was was a key learning that that was important. Um, but in the two DRC, the two recent DRC outbreaks, uh, initially in North Kivu, a number of staff were trained staff were brought from Equator to North Kivu, and that caused a lot of problems at the beginning because even they were seen as foreigners, people coming from Kinshasa. So I think it's important to know that you know each context is very different, and to kind of front load that understanding of who we're working with and where we're working is really key. And I hope that that plays into the coronavirus now as well. Thank you. Bernard, did you have any comment before we move on? I just want to say that we are ahead of the game in DRC. We've learned from Ebola. There are some practices that are almost embedded in people's uh, day-to-day -day life now in terms of hand washing and this uh, in the eastern part of, uh, of the country. I think this will help us uh, kind of uh, be a little bit ahead of the game. Uh, it won't take us a lot of effort to, uh, to teach people, at least in the eastern part of the country, uh, or in terms of this, uh, this disease. There is also a meeting planned for all faith-based leaders, uh, faith leaders in Kinshasa, to start looking at how they can influence the community, how they can start helping the community internalize all the good practices to avoid uh, uh, the coronavirus to spread in the country. Thanks very much, Bernard. Very, uh, very interesting lessons that uh, we hope really are going to be applied. Um, Natalie, um, I'm going to move on now. Um, I wanted to, uh, to note that in your article, you highlight three key questions that you think should be addressed when uh, designing an epidemic, epidemic response. And uh, no doubt you'll refer to your current uh, focus on the coronavirus. But, um, and these are how, how to protect health workers, how to reduce the number of infections, and how to limit the number of deaths. And as a responder in both West Africa and DRC, can you tell us about the key approaches, technologies, and products that have evolved since 2015 and, and how they've been applied in the DRC Ebola response? And to what extent do you think they've had an impact on the outcomes? Uh, yeah, okay. Well, actually, um, in my paper, I detailed three questions, but there's really four key, key ambitions, but I didn't have the space to develop on the fourth one, so I, I cut <laughs> it down to three. But the fourth one was really about the social and economic impacts of, of the disease and trying to mitigate the ne negative consequences in, in that respect. And I think rather than just kind of documenting them, I think we can have a role in terms of, of reducing those negative consequences on society and on, on economics and on politics of, of that society. Um, but, yeah, I, I think 
we, we describe them more here as ambitions and, and uh, the idea of these key ambitions of trying to approach those different kind of factors. Um, and, and in that way, we can measure our success or not our, our, our success and whether we need to then adjust our approaches in the aim of, of reaching those ambitions. I think in West Africa, at the beginning of, of the outbreak, probably those intentions were there. And then during the outbreak, what happened in West Africa was there were so many adapt, there was sort of so many forced um, uh, adaptations to the system and these exceptional circumstances we saw in West Africa, particularly in terms of staff becoming infected, uh, that, it, that it felt that actually sometimes in West Africa, it lost a bit of sight of, of some of those. If you can't even protect your staff, then how on earth can you, can you uh, expect to try and reduce transmission and try and reduce mortality of the patients? And I think in West Africa, I mean, you know, when you look back, we, we didn't really manage to get much further than trying to protect the staff. And, and I think that's probably something we need to admit rather than, than kind of claiming West Africa was an amazing success. Um, but it did feel at least from within MSF, um, probably that we lost that insight a little bit with Ebola. We, you know, we had a, a major role to play in West Africa, Ebola. And, and so people just kind of felt, oh, well, that's how we did it in West Africa. We'll cut and paste that approach. Um, into into DRC and at least it, it felt very much like that at the beginning uh, of the epidemic in DRC from the MSF point of view, even though we can really reflect on whether the approach in West Africa had the impact that we wanted it to have, um, particularly in terms of of the budget that was deployed in West Africa and the fact that we can't demonstrate really that we ever reduced transmission or reduced mortality or did very much in terms of mitigating these social or political economic impacts of, of an extremely exceptional uh, outbreak. And, and looking at coronavirus today, I think it's really important right now that uh, in our approach to coronavirus, we, we don't lose sight of those ambitions, those now four ambitions, um, to make sure that everything we're planning is aiming towards those ambitions. And I think we're, we're doing a bit better with coronavirus, actually, probably because we don't have a model. Uh, we're, we're all recognizing this as a new phenomenon, and so we're not trying to cut and paste other things that we've done before. But what we have noticed in, in Congo is we did have some positive uh, outcomes in the end, particularly protecting staff. I think that's been a huge, huge deal. Something we can say at the end of, of DRC outbreak is that we feel a lot more confident now about, about deploying people to work and treat patients without putting them at, at risk. And that's, that's a key thing in any form of catastrophe. If you have a road accident, you don't then send your first responders the side of the car crash in the middle of the motorway, um, putting them at risk. You need to make sure that they can actually operate in that situation. And the key chain, game changer for us uh, in this context is the vaccine. In fact, vaccinating staff and, and feeling with some level of confidence that it's not perfect, but the, really their risk of them being infected is was a, was a huge deal for, for us. Um, and I think probably we needed to take that much more seriously at the beginning. Um, less reliance on on the PPE and these spacesuits, which aren't really adapted for, for actually treating patients and, and actually have negative consequences um, and, and haven't got an evidence base. Actually, we do need to understand what the best model of, of PPE is. Um, but at least now we have the vaccine and we say, well, we're still not going to send people into a treatment center without wearing some form of protection. But we know that they're vaccinated. So if there's a problem with the protection, with the PPE, then then we don't think they're going to get infected. And that that's a huge thing. And I think 
in future outbreaks, vaccination staff is the first thing that has to happen. Um, and But not just the staff working in the treatment centres, not just the staff working in response, any person who provides medical care and is likely to be treating sick patients within the whole area that's affected needs to receive a vaccine. So going back, that's the traditional practitioners again, that's these nurses that go from door to door, um, that's the pharmacists that work on the street corner who are actually giving injections. Um, you know, all those people need to receive a vaccine and that's that's the first thing that has to happen in an outbreak. And in fact, we can maybe go further and start looking at whether with future vaccines being developed, medical staff working in areas that are more likely to have Ebola outbreaks, do we want to start vaccinating them preventively in case that there's an outbreak in their area? But we're not there yet. Um, I think in terms of reducing spread, looking at that, um, that should be really quite straightforward in an, in an Ebola epidemic. It's something that's a lot easier than in the current coronavirus outbreak. Ebola is not very contagious as a disease. It's actually really quite difficult to get this disease. Um, and, and they're only contagious once they become symptomatic. Whereas in coronavirus, what we, what we think we're finding now is that people have an incubation period where they're actually contagious. So you don't know you're sick, but you're passing the disease on to others. In Ebola, we don't have that. Um, so it should have been a lot easier to, to stop the spread and stop these transmission chains happening. But we, we really didn't look into the health seeking behavior of the population enough at the beginning. We created this parallel system um, quite early on and, and tried to induce somehow behavior change in the population um, that no population is quick to, to embrace behavior change. I mean, I've seen this in Paris over the weekend, you know, the recommendations that were put in on Saturday, on Sunday were not being followed. And in, in fact, it was almost like people felt somehow immortal or that they can choose to fight against uh, an infectious disease by, by, you know, just saying, well, it won't affect me. Um, it's normal, it's a normal thing for a population to take some time to, to change behaviors. Um, and if, particularly if they can't see the rationale behind that, we're asking them to, to adapt to our system rather than us adapting to their system. And they don't really understand why, because all the messaging at the beginning of the outbreak was, well, there's no, there's no treatment for this disease. There's no cure for this disease. But this slightly irrational messaging of, but you should wash your hands. And, and people saying, well, OK, well, if it's just as easy as washing your hands, then why in your treatment centers are people wearing spacesuits? Why are people coming to decontaminate the health center with chlorine wearing spacesuits? Why don't they just wash their hands and then they'll be fine? So I think, you know, there was really very illogical messaging, which we thought would induce behavior. I don't think we believed it would induce behavior change. It was just a sort of model that had been developed, not really based on a clear, a clear rationale. And then, you know, then we we said, oh, people don't have confidence in us. People don't trust us. Well, of course, people don't trust us because they can they don't understand what what we're doing is not rational. <laughs> so so they don't trust us. Um, and so I think, you know, you have to start going back to basics of how do you get people to engage with a response that doesn't benefit them in any way? They don't see any benefit from that response. We did see some positive impacts, though, and, and, and one thing we saw really did manage to reduce is the nosocomial transmission. So that means the transmission happening within health facilities, um, particularly within the treatment centers themselves. At the beginning, we made sure that you know, we weren't mixing uh, people who weren't confirmed to have Ebola with people who definitely had Ebola or might have Ebola. Um, we, we really changed the way we, um, 
we work within treatment centers and the you know the hygiene and the spacing between patients in the treatment centers which then gradually got rolled out more and more into into other health facilities um, so it wasn't just a case of decontaminating health facilities but changing the way that the staff work within with patients uh, not just protecting themselves but making sure that they they protect patients from each other in, in just in case a patient has has Ebola and I think that it took a while it took a long time because there are so many health facilities so many healthcare providers in this part of the world that again it's it's changing behaviors um so you know it's it's not much different from changing the behavior of of the population is trying to change the behavior of, of healthcare workers. Um, but, but we did manage to get there um, later on. I think one initiative and something that we really pushed to explore, and I think right towards the end, maybe it started happening in terms of reducing the transmission, was the idea of, of providing a post-exposure prophylaxis for people. A key point was that you'd have so many times a, a family relative who'd had someone sick at home, they did what they always do, which is look after their sick relative at home um, until the point when they, they said, OK, well, now I need to seek healthcare, uh, external healthcare." in which point they may or may not have ended up being referred to a treatment centre. It may have taken more time. During that time, the family caregiver is, is exposed, massively exposed to the disease and, and is very, very you know, high risk of, of being infected, much higher risk than someone else in the population. And yet what happens is when the patient finally gets diagnosed with Ebola, this family caregiver gets told, well, you, you might develop Ebola or not. You may already be infected or not. We'll give you a vaccine which doesn't stop you developing the disease, but otherwise you're pretty much on your own and come back to us if you get sick. But at the same time, there's no treatment or cure. So. <laughs> So it was again, it's that that type of person where you really want to be able to offer them something. You want to be able to for them to benefit somehow. And I think apart from you know the social economic support that we can give people like that, which was explored by some some actors, but but very basically, I think the idea of giving one of these antibody treatments now that we know does work to neutralize the virus for people because we think they're really at high risk of, of developing of already being infected. I think that that is something we need to explore a lot further in, in future. And I, I know that there's there's other people interested in that. Um, lastly, then moving on from the treatments to, to trying to reduce the mortality um, of, of these people. I mean, this is a game changer, the antibody treatments that we do know now that they work, but they're not a magic bullet. It's like um, you can draw a parallel, not this time with coronavirus, but something like uh, meningitis. If you have a patient who develops meningitis, um, you know, they have a window of time in which you can give them an antibiotic and they will survive. Um, if you leave it too late, the antibiotic kills the bacteria, but they've already developed so many medical problems that, uh, that they, they either need huge high intensive level care or, or they, it's just not reversible, the, the damage that's been done already and, and they're going to die anyway. And Ebola is very similar. They, yes, they need these antibody treatments and yes, they need an appropriate level of care and really a high standard of care if they're sick. But what we know is this needs to come with, with an early arrival of the patient to that care. And that means rather than waiting for people to definitely have symptoms of Ebola and then waiting for a test result, um, which demonstrates that they definitely do have Ebola and we're definitely confident that they have Ebola and then providing them with treatment and care. We need to flip that on its head and say, well, 
the risk is that they have Ebola because of the history of the contact with people or because of any other factors. Um, and because, because Ebola is such a highly fatal disease that if they do have Ebola, the chances that they're going to die are very high, then we're willing to take the risk of giving them a drug that we know is safe and, and, and effective uh, and treating them as if they've got Ebola. Um, and, and I think that's something that started to change again in West Africa, the way we approach these people that we assume have Ebola and we don't need them to prove that they have Ebola before we take them seriously as, as potentially an Ebola patient. And that doesn't have to be in a, a specialized Ebola treatment center necessarily. I mean, if speed is of, of the essence, then what you need to do is try and get to those patients as close to their homes as possible. And I think, again, in, West, in, in DRC, this is where we were starting to arrive to trying to get closer and closer to the patient. So I think there are initiatives that have started. I don't think we will be able to demonstrate positive impact. I think they're more based on logic, um, really. And I'm going back again to these fundamental ambitions of what to do in, in this type of epidemic. Um, and I think if we keep bearing those in mind, we can start using approaches that are logical and based on what evidence we have and then build a body of evidence to prove that they work. Thanks, Natalie. Does anybody from the panel want to add to what Natalie's already said? Teresa? Yeah, just to jump in to kind of um, talk a bit around, I think one lesson that we need to keep learning is that um, it's not only IPC and vaccination that will protect, protect health workers. You know, if you're asking questions at triage, have you had recent contact with sick people? You're also relying on the person to tell you the truth and to give you the detailed answer. And that requires good communication. That requires helping the person understand why you're asking these questions. It requires, again, trust to be built. And if a health worker is already afraid or they're anxious or they're angry, that's really difficult. Um, so I think that in terms of IPC training, I think it's slowly becoming more holistic and is integrating those more psychosocial components which I think that kind of humanizing of the response has been something that we've talked that we've spoken about for a long time. And it's something that currently colleagues are researching into as well for the current coronavirus outbreak. So I just wanted to add that small bit. Yes, thanks for that, uh, Teresa. Um, actually, Teresa, while we have you, I just wanted to move on to you now. Um, the West Africa Ebola crisis was the the first time that the critical role that social science research play in an outbreak was recognized. And the value of understanding vulnerable people's perceptions and behaviors around Ebola, prevention and treatment, I guess it's, it's now well accepted, although we're not always seeing the lessons being applied. So in North Kivu, I understand there are many different ethnic and linguistic groups as well as non-local armed forces and factions, and all of, all of whom are vulnerable to Ebola. And as a social science researcher, how do you prioritize which groups to work with in such a complex context? Yeah, thank you, Wendy, for the question. So as a social scientist, your role is to help response teams understand the context as broadly as possible, which is extremely tough. When, a, when in a health emergency, time and resources are limited and the populations affected or at risk are potentially both huge and very varied. Um, but before I jump in first, I just wanted to flag the idea 
in your question of engaging vulnerable groups. I do think that one key lesson we are learning is the value of taking a whole of society approach. So specifically including vulnerable groups is important, but it can only really be done if you, had a, if you have a full understanding of context and those different factors that might make certain groups vulnerable in different settings, because everyone is vulnerable to a greater or lesser degree, depending on their risk profile. Um, but in terms of prioritizing groups to work with, as a social scientist, in the immediate phase when a health emergency is declared, we can begin mobilizing existing knowledge. There is existing knowledge. We don't, you know, we don't work in a vacuum um, on critical issues such as the context. So, for example, people groups, language, livelihoods, with a special focus on drivers that might influence transmission and response. So, for example, movements, basic infrastructure, and so on. Secondly, on key themes that we can predict from our experience in health emergencies that are important, for example, the uptake of health services, burial practices, and so on. Thirdly, on lessons learned from previous outbreaks. Uh, and then fourthly, on emerging issues from the side of the response. So do we know if new vaccines or new therapeutics are going to be introduced? Um, other immediate actions that a social scientist might take could include the formation of networks of local, national, international experts who can provide their insight and guidance on these key questions like you ask around who are the priority groups to work with. So this body of information can be meshed with real-time data from new studies conducted in affected or at-risk areas ideally by local national social science researchers who are deployed as part of the emergency response. So as you say, a clear learning has been that the response must be informed by the expertise of people who live in areas of emergency, who are the, most, who are the hardest to reach, but also who are those key influences or entry points at the community level that are crucial to partner with during response activities. And then analyzing the context at this level means understanding those different historical, political, and social factors that might now react with the emergency situation. So recent example, presence of armed groups, perceptions of, of current or other humanitarian interventions, because these will very likely affect which groups are most at risk, which groups might be hardest to engage, and also which groups might be those priority partners to work alongside of. Um, I think what's also important to consider when, when uh, analyzing which groups to work with is that there are different priorities at different stages of an outbreak. So during preparedness, we might be thinking about surveillance. So at border areas, we might be working with marketeers or transport workers. But we also can consider that there are different levels and different degrees of engagement possible with different groups. Um, so as social scientists, we have a number of methods and approaches to understanding these issues. So more rapid ethnographic techniques, interviews, focus groups, quantitative measures like surveys, and also more participatory approaches like participatory mapping, which we might do at border areas with or with transitory populations. I think it's these approaches that are more attuned with that need to be community-led, 
to be able to generate these community-driven actions and to build on existing and local structures with that appreciation that you know communities are usually the first responders. Um, at the same time, it's important that a social scientist listens to the operational priorities from the response side and prioritizing which groups to work with is going to require closely working with epi teams and triangulating data. So Linda noted how that has been quite um, a helpful partnership that's, that's developed during the current outbreak. So as we know, in outbreaks, the situation is always evolving. So these types of questions like who are priority groups to work with, they're not going to be answered by one research study at one point in time. Ongoing learning from a social science perspective needs to be integrated across the response and to become an integral part of its decision making and functioning. So I think that we touched upon earlier the social science analysis cell, so the CAS team, um, which is run by UNICEF, CDC, WHO and MOH. Um, and supported by CDC Atlanta, that's really been a key chance to learn how do we integrate social science expertise across an active response. So they sit under the MOH strategic coordination next to the EPICEL, but they have staff in different sectors who can be understanding what are the research needs and what studies are timely and relevant and what actions and recommendations should be co-developed so that data gets used. I think that's really critical to answering some of the questions and like the questions you ask around priority groups to work with, because these answers are not static. Um, so this type of integration is necessary. And now, fortunately, we've really generated some good learning around how to do this in a response. Uh, Teresa, we had a question from Linda Petit, who was working with OCHA uh, in the DRC. And she's asked if you could give an example of a recommendation that the social sciences cell gave to the national coordination leadership that was acted upon in a timely manner. Can you, can you think of anything specific that you could offer as an example? Yeah, so one of the studies was around the perception and use of health and Ebola services. And one of the um, actions I can think of was around um, being able to bring in local leaders to have tours of facilities to get a better understanding of what happens inside. And as far as I understand, that's an action that has been taking place and was taken on board. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, your, in your, art, your particular article, which was written, I think, with colleagues from the Bethesda, um, you focus on grief and memorialization, and are mm. there certain practices and beliefs common to all groups where common messages can be developed, or do we need to develop different messages for each community and specific guidance for responders working in different locations? So it's a good question, and for me, this really does health emergency you know we have issues like death and grief which are such important and complex human processes but there's this drive to standardize response actions around them um, so for those who don't know to prevent the spread of Ebola through the handling of dead bodies which can be very infectious the protocol during a health response is for burials to be carried out by special teams who are trained to do so, and these are called safe and dignified burials. So these were developed during the West Africa outbreak, 
um, and usually involve the use of body bags, disinfectant spray and PPE. Um, they were really acknowledged as important for controlling the West Africa um, outbreak, but at the same time, these rather sort of prescribed processes were documented as denying many families the chance to say goodbye in the way that they would usually do and in line with their cultural values. So I think this lesson has somewhat been applied in DRC that burials are more than just an infection control action and they have much wider significance at the social, cultural and the psychological level. Um, although protocols have been adapted in DRC in line with, with uh, local ethnic practices, they, they do remain rather prescribed processes for families, which is understandable given the biosafety concerns. Um, but one point that's been posited is whether these protocols that's, that do follow standard procedure, can they become even more flexible? So the safety bit can be standardized, but can the dignified bit? So a dignified burial for me will be something that's very different than a dignified burial for you. So can a more flexible protocol keep the safety bit a standard, but the dignified bit instead becomes more actively contextualized and adapted to fit the preference of each circumstance? So, for example, that might mean developing protocol to help burial teams explore with families what would be acceptable in this situation, which allows for the sort of context specificity that you refer to. Um, and people are generally pra pragmatic and flexible, and if they have a good understanding of why adaptation is needed, then they do. But I think this adaptation, which Natalie spoke about, is needed on both sides, and it links to a couple of the articles in this series on the need to adapt care practices to be as humane as, as possible. Um, but you ask around if there are practices and beliefs which are common to all groups. And, I mean, yes, ceremonies around death, grief, the drive to remember people that have passed away. These are very human and are incredibly important to many, if not most, societies, but they do vary considerably, um, not just within localities, sorry, not just between localities, but within localities as well. So people of different social status, people from different generations, and these are always in flux. You know, traditions are always being renegotiated. So the idea of messaging around this topic, I'm not sure what role one directional messaging can play in something as complex as grief and memorialization. I guess my worry is that having predetermined messages for group for grief specifically is that they can kind of work against genuine demonstrations of respect or empathy for grieving families, which is probably what is most needed at a basic level from response teams. I think sometimes we need to trust people to say the right thing, especially when they, you know, they come from the areas affected and they might even be neighbours with those grieving families. So the article that, um, that I co-authored with Noe Kasali from the Bethesda Counselling Centre and Olivia Tullock documents a more formal memorialisation intervention by a Congolese counselling organisation from Beni. And this group have this more localised cultural expertise, they're familiar with the cultural customs of the area, but also have technical background in psychosocial support as well. Um, so and are for there example, links with faith, faith actors as well? Uh, sorry to interrupt, Teresa. Are there links with faith yeah. actors taking on board some of the points that Bernard mentioned earlier? 
So it's actually a, a Christian organization, so they work very closely with the church. Um, and part of the memorialization process is deciding, it's the families themselves deciding what format that ceremony should take. And that might or might not include faith leaders, depending on the preference of, of the group. But the actual organization has very close ties with the church and they often work through leaders. Um, mm -hmm. To finish, um, I think this example is a good one in terms of not just having a localized activity, but where the people affected by the issue are taking the lead. They're deciding, you know, where they're going to meet to, to plan the ceremony. They're deciding whether they take part in the process at all. And I think that it's being localized and community led that will help us address some of these more complex topics like like grief and memorialization. Thanks, Teresa. Um, I also have a question, uh, an online question, uh, which is related to some work done by Translators Without Borders. Um, their work has identified key language-related lessons in public health responses. Um, the languages that responders use matter, and the content that responders deliver must take into account local language uses and the way responders deliver that content, uh, ensuring that health communications are equipped to relay accurate information in local languages that people trust. So how can we ensure that these language lessons become standard practice and health response responses? And I mean, this isn't just for Teresa, but maybe you want to start, and then we can go to other panelists who might have a view. Yeah. I, th I think it comes back to a kind of a theme that we've all spoken about in various ways, and that's the kind of the need to do things at the beginning and to be able to understand what is the what, what is the correct local language to use? What are you know, what different groups do you have to adapt this language to to make it understandable? How do we have to train staff to use this information to be able to communicate it well? But as well as understanding earlier, we also need to continually learn and adapt. So some things that came out, I think from this particular study, but also from other pieces of research was around certain terms being quite military um, and being sort of perceived in a threatening way by people. So it kind of drove them away from, from the response rather than helping them engage in it. And maybe that learning Inevitably, it's going to come up perhaps down the line. You can do some really good formative research at the beginning, but there are some things that are just going to come up along the way. So I think embedding learning from this perspective is really important. Um, and again, this needs to feed in across sectors. There's no, no reason to silo something like learnings around language into risk communications and community engagement, because it's going to have implications for absolutely every sector. Mm -hmm. but I'm sure my colleagues is anyone else like to comment on that? Uh, in the case of uh, in the in the case of Butembo and this uh, um, Ebola outbreak, I think language was a big issue. We saw a lot of people coming here saying, you know, they speak Swahili. They will go and speak Swahili. In DRC, you can speak Swahili, but there how many Swahilis we speak here? Um, I speak Swahili, but in Lubumbashi, I'm lost definitely. Uh, people from Nairobi and Kenya, when they come here, don't understand probably 50% of what they're saying. And in Benin and Butembo, the Swahili 
they speak there is their Swahili specific. And uh, uh, when you go and train there, I think you need to take that into account. That question is a very critical question. And I don't think we did take that into good account when we went there. Some of the language may also be intimidating. Uh, we will come with uh, your perfect French from France, uh, intimidating me here from the village. I think all that needs to be taken into account. Uh, I don't know if it's a lesson that we learned as well. I don't know if somebody uh, documented that, but I know there have been difficulties uh, uh, in that areas as well. How will you be speaking to patients while they don't understand uh, uh, probably 80% or 50% of what you're saying? Thanks, Bernard. Uh, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, I think from, from MSF's point of view, it's quite surprising that we, at the beginning, and I agree with Teresa, that actually the, the problem came at the beginning because we have been working in that part of the world for 20 years. Um, a lot of our staff come from that part of the world. People who have been working for MSF for 20 years, and in fact, we've sent them to other parts of the world, and we're bringing them all back in to come and work in that area. And, and we have many staff who who come from Beni and Butembo, or at least the Grand of North Kivu. Um, and, and so the language wasn't so much an issue for us. We had a lot of staff. We're used to working, having to work through translators anyway, and we're used to recruiting translators locally. What was quite surprising is at the beginning is we sent people who were Ebola experts rather than people who, who necessarily deploying our normal staff who normally work in that area or who, who come from that area. Instead, we, we just chose to kind of deploy people who had an experience in West Africa. And I think that was probably a mistake um, because Ebola, given that we didn't really know what to do about Ebola, I, I'm not really sure it was that helpful to deploy people who'd, who'd worked in a different context on a disease that is actually not that complicated and we didn't really have many approaches for. But I think what an interesting phenomenon to go further in that is even the guys, the people we had who came from there, who were already working in the area, who speak the local language, who come from that local population, they found it very difficult to work there. They found it very difficult to work there because suddenly with all the money that was coming in for the Ebola response, they were labeled as Ebola respondents, even if they were from the local population. And, and we know for sure that, that everybody was trying to profit from this response. And in fact, one of the main complaints of the population very early on was everybody's benefiting from this except us. And so if you had someone from the local population who was then an Ebola responder, they were automatically labeled as somebody who was just in it for the money. Um, and even if they could speak the local language, and in fact, you know, they were within their own society, they actually sometimes find it very difficult to, to work like that. And I, I think, you know, you can't just say it was just about the language. It's not as simple as the language. It's also about the whole response and, and how do we make sure that the response is actually doing what the local population need it to do. And, and, and given the huge negative consequences on society and on the economics of society, the fact that at the end of the response, people are still saying, well, I, I can't go to work, I can't earn any money, I can't afford to pay for healthcare. Um, and then they're having to address that to MSF staff who come from that area who are not able to help them. I, I think it's not just about the language, we need to think a bit further Better than that. Thanks, Natalie. Linda? So one other point I wanted to make, um, I think Translators Without Borders did an excellent study and they actually shared this in GOMA and it was really well received. Um, I think the content of the messaging is also important. Um, Translators Without Borders mentioned the fact that the use of language such as isolation 
created a lot of um, you know, panic, fear, confusion. Um, and so health literacy and how we explain these concepts to the population using the local language to translate these medical concepts into something that's easily, um, that can be easily understood is extremely critical as well. But I think it's the responsibility of all stakeholders to make sure whether it's donors, NGOs, UN agencies, government, to make sure that like Teresa said um, at the beginning when you're designing your program, when you're designing your projects, that these lessons learned are incorporated, that you, you utilize the right language. Congo has more than 300 local languages. Um, and so this problem will come up in other provinces with coronavirus, for example. So this is another lesson learned for coronavirus. So when we do respond in another province, let's make sure we're utilizing the right language, that the content of our messaging is actually correct, and that um, we're explaining things in a way that the population can easily understand. Thanks for that, Linda. Um, I've got a question online here. Uh, let me read it to you, because I think this is an interesting one for the panelists to consider. This is the panel spoke about what gets in the way of localization, and this person would like to hear deeper reflections on this, as we see local agencies don't have the same power as international bodies. And the panelists share reflections on how to tackle the power differentials in public health response. Um, would anybody like to take a first stab? Bernard? Yes, I, I think that is not only in uh, public health, that is almost across uh, 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 across the board. Uh, we see organizations here in DRC that are celebrating 50 years. In DRC that have been working with local organizations for 50 years, and they keep telling us those local organizations have no capacity. I think we need to look at ourselves and say we don't have capacity. If we've been working with you for 50 years and you can't, you don't have capacity, that means we failed. We as uh, uh, international organizations. Another layer is, uh, is the donor layer. Uh, the donors are making it very difficult for uh, local organizations to access funding. For that, those local organizations have to go through uh, uh, a lot of processes and usually through international organizations. So we become like middle guys, like commissioners, to help them get funding and they do the job. And we do the reporting because the reporting is in English and they do it in French, we have to translate them. And we, the specialists, we take all the credit, of course, uh, as we go. So there are a, little of, a lot of layers in terms of localization that is really getting along the way. But the willingness need to come from the, the, the international organization, from the donor downward, and I think upward. Upward, local organizations need to work hard and really improve their system to the level that they can be trusted. And upward, I think, will be, again, we need to be walking the talk to make sure uh, we are incorporating uh, uh, locals. It's not, a, it's not a fight. It's not like you go, I stay. No, the needs are huge in this country. Uh, and, and the more we, we, we keep this local organization very fragile, the more we, we have them die quickly, the more we will, not, we, will, we will not get there. Again, I keep saying they've been there before us. They are there and they'll be there. In fact, we always come and intervene very late. Ebola, I said, started in May. It was declared in August. We all came as an international organization a little bit late. Now coronavirus is going on. In the country, we already have four cases. They are working, some local organizations are already working while we are drafting proposals and looking for money. So I think the issues are, 
at many, many layers and we need to look at them and walk the talk. That's what we need to say. Not when we are in New York, in, in, in London and in, in, in Paris, talk some sex word that, you know, we want localization. When we come here, you know, there is that kind of competition. We have become a business like any mining company that is. Mm, thanks, Bernard. Yes. Uh, anyone else want to comment on that? Natalie? I think it's something to, to recognize that um, there's a bit of confusion about the pillars, the pillar-based approach. Um, what I think we can see from, from West Africa and now DRC is that pillars are essentially no different than clusters in any other catastrophe um, these days. And there does need to be some kind of organization of the coordination and some kind of organization of the funding. And I think pillars in DRC really became about organizing a strategic plan, which was really about obtaining the funding for donors. But then how do you then uh, incorporate local actors into that when they don't necessarily fit into this this model it's a very sort of centralized um international model you know much like the cluster system the pillar system has become a sort of a model that is that is really adapted for use for reporting in, in geneva and other locations um and i don't i think in future we need to be a bit more careful about what we mean by pillars we've already discussed the fact that pillars create silos and you have you know kind of bizarre kind of things in one pillar or another pillar and they don't talk to each other. I think that's a huge problem, but I think it's also really um, an issue of how are we going to translate this pillar approach or, or do we abandon the pillar-based approach? Um, and if we want to really incorporate local actors, and by that I mean the population themselves, uh, they don't understand pillars. So, so why are we? Why do we insist on saying, "Oh, it's this pillar or that pillar"? Um, and is there? We need to link that somehow better together. Thanks, Natalie. And um, we've we've only got about five minutes left now. Um, I have um, a couple more questions online here. So I think, um, and I've also wanted to really ask you all if you had any reflections on given that we are in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, but are there any other key lessons that you can think of from the DRC Ebola response that you think will um, inform future infectious disease outbreaks in the region or the, the response to the current coronavirus? Are there any key ones that you want to hone in on right now? Linda. I think having a multidisciplinary approach um, from the start um, is extremely critical. Um, and, and making sure that when you have teams, um, that you have you know, social scientists and communicators and epidemiologists that go out together um, as a team, as opposed to you know, maintaining those silos that we've talked about um, quite a bit. Um, I, I do think that um, making sure that early on as you're doing your strategic planning that you incorporate all these lessons in the beginning. We've talked about this a lot. Start, start right and don't wait until you have um, challenges and issues a, a couple of months in to look back and say, okay, what did we not um, implement correctly? I think you have to start correctly um, from, from the beginning. And I think um, actually this discussion was extremely useful because um, kind of across the board, looking at the use of, you know, the engagements of religious, religious leaders, social scientists, 
um, you know, science, all of that combined. Um, make sure that these lessons are documented quickly because I, you know, as you as you know, um, you know, the ninth outbreak um, ended a, a week later. The tenth outbreak began. We're not done with the tenth outbreak and coronavirus started, and so. We're seeing more and more outbreaks come back to back. So let's make sure that we incorporate these lessons learned um, quickly. Um, let's document them. Let's have protocols. But let's make sure that we implement them. But let's not let's not just have them in writing. Um, and as I had mentioned before, there are so many things that we learned. Um, I think um, one thing that we that Natalie briefly touched on was the use of investigational drugs under compassionate care. And I think this is coming up with coronavirus. Um, as you know, there's no known scientific treatment right now. And that was the case with Ebola back in 2014. Um, and, you know, z and other drugs were used under compassionate use before a randomized controlled trial was implemented. Um, in, in, in DRC, the MURI um, project, which is, which is the monitoring, monitored emergency use of investigational drugs, was implemented quite quickly to ensure that um, you could use um, investigational drugs that had some, that had shown some effectiveness, um, not in a randomized control trial necessarily, but to treat patients. So that's something that should be um, started quickly. You know, processes to actually implement or start research trials should be, um, you know, fast-tracked. Um, I know that there's a vaccine trial that's ongoing that just started, um, but let's, let's, let's also look at compassionate use um, and uh, making sure that that's actually leveraged and utilized. Thank you very much, Linda. You'd like to go next, Bernard, or? Yes, I, I'm, I'm glad Linda mentioned the, the fact that we'll be working, I think that was Natalie, sorry, the fact that we'll be working in the existing uh, uh, health system. I think we need to keep all the response in the existing health system so that can help us actually reinforce the health system that exists here as opposed to, uh, uh, to making it more, uh, more fragile. Uh, I'm also thinking there should be a clear entry point early on in this process for faith-based organizations to really be in the coordination mechanism, access funding, and uh, and be key players in uh, uh, in this. And I'm saying this not because I work for uh, a faith-based organization, but because of the reach they can have at the national level. All of them, they have an organization that is in Kinshasa at the national level, and they have layers until at the decentralized level. So their messages can get anywhere uh, you want it to go. So they should be well involved in the communication pillar, although uh, Natalie and I don't like the word the pillar, uh, earlier on uh, uh, in the process. Thanks, Bernard. Teresa. Yeah, so um, two things from me. I think, first of all, that community engagement remains crucial. Um, so some of the key interventions that are happening globally, social distancing, hand washing, protecting our most vulnerable populations, they're going to be key in this outbreak. So people need to understand why they're being given these instructions and messaging and communication needs to evolve as people's information needs evolve, which I think is something we haven't really learned very well to do. You know, if people mm. want to know more and know why, how can we let them know that. And then the other side is that more psychosocial side. Um, how do we manage that when people are maybe quarantined, they're socially isolated, when we know that social support is such a big part of our well-being? So I think that's going to be both something for us to learn from Ebola, but also something for us to continue learning in this new, very specific uh, situation. 
Thank you, Teresa. And Natalie, you have the last word. Oh, thank you. I, I think actually coronavirus, it will be very interesting to see this phenomenon because uh, this is not just in one country and one location and the small, relatively small population that's affected. This is a global phenomenon. I think what, what will be interesting is that we can't have a huge mega response in one location. In the end, um, Congo will have to make do with what Congo has. Um, and um, yes, there might be some money coming in, but in terms of the support that, for example, MSF would normally provide, it's very difficult to, to, to see us being able to do a huge amount more in terms of supply or human resources because we're stretched all over the world. And I think everybody, we will see that phenomenon where, um, for example, in France right now, it's very difficult for us to get any, any people, any French doctors to leave France um, to go somewhere else. One, because we physically can't, because flights are not working, but also because they're needed in their home societies. And I think the phenomenon of coronavirus being like that means that people will have to, rather than planning for a perfect response, and we all need to learn lessons, but one of the lessons is sometimes you just have to kind of be pragmatic and say, well, what are we aiming to do here? And what do we have to try and fix that now, rather than aiming for the perfect scientific evidence-based solution, but just kind of go, okay, well, what is the problem and how can we try and fix that with what we have at our disposal today? And I, I think that will be very interesting to witness in, in countries like, um, well, African countries where, yes, we've seen what works in places like South Korea and we're seeing what worked in places like China, but it's not the same context, it's not the same place and they don't have the same resources. So the, the creativity that be required to try and, uh, you know, learn lessons from other locations, but actually implement them in a pragmatic and, and rapid way in, in the rhythm of this epidemic will be, be super interested to see if people feel that they have the space to be creative um, in responding to this outbreak and, and using local solutions. I think it's, it's a very exciting time, even though it's a very stressful time, because I think it's not just learning lessons from Ebola. It's about how do we keep reflecting and learning as we go rather than waiting for this one to be over and then say, okay, what do we do next time? Yes, no, very good point. Thank you. And we've, we've actually come to the end of our time, so I'm going to have to bring the webinar to a close. But I wanted to thank all four of our panelists for this really interesting and insightful discussion. And I'm sure that all of those watching online uh, will feel the same. But there should be a recording of this session on the ODI website within a few days. And um, so I hope that, that uh, you'll pass on the word to those who weren't able to join us today. So thank you again very much. And uh, we will all be keeping in touch. And stay safe and stay well. Goodbye. Thank you goodbye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.